Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing special guest Carol J. Michael. Based in Indiana, Carol is a blogger and podcaster and award-winning author of a number of gardening books and a children's book. You can't follow Carol on Twitter for reasons we'll get into, but you can check out her website at caroljmichael, that's M-I-C-H-E-L dot com, her blog at maydreamsgardens.com, her YouTube channel at youtube.com slash indiegardener, and the Garden Angelus podcasts, which she co-hosts with Dee Nash. In this interview, we're going to talk about Carol's background and her books, maybe a bit about gardening, and then we're going to focus on her recent popular post on Jane Friedman's website about how to market your book without social media. So thank you very much, Carol, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe where you came from and grew up and how you made your way into uh, gardening. So I grew up here in Indiana, where I still live, and I started gardening like many lucky children, following my dad around in the garden, and I loved it. Um, I also loved writing, and I remember writing stories in the second grade and thinking that was, the teacher thought it was a punishment if you had to stay in for recess and make you write a story, and I thought, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. So I did go to Purdue University, and I got a degree in horticulture. And I got out of Purdue University and realized that the economy at that time, which was decades ago, was not good. And prospects for jobs were not good. So I went right back and got a computer technology associate degree. And then, as I tell people, I got the first job I was offered working as a COBOL programmer in healthcare IT. And I stayed there for 33 years until I took an early retirement. And I became like the director of something or others. And anyway, about, I'm going to say 10 years before I retired, I was talking to these tech guys. And by then I'm in management, so I don't really have all the details of every technology. I says, what are these weblogs? It seems like it's easy to get on the web with these weblogs. And they explained it to me. And so I made a couple of fits and starts. And in 2006, I really started blogging about gardening. I was still working full time. I loved doing it, and I immediately, not immediately, but I started to have an audience, and I did something that turns out today, and I'm, we're into 15 years of doing this, something called Garden Bloggers Bloom Day. On the 15th of every month, I got gardeners across the country, around the world to post what's blooming in your garden, and then come back and link to my blog, and in the early days, you know, we get like 100 And now, you know, during the height of the growing season, I might get 40 or 50. Uh, During the winter, it might be 20 or 30, but I never give it up because, hey, people, they post, they link, and that is all good in the blogging world. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. It's it's so interesting. I was was quite fascinated when I saw that you uh, had this background in, you know, computer technology and things like that, partly because, you know, that's just, you know, as we were talking about before the podcast, most lean pub authors are, you know, people who are sort of from or adjacent to that space. Um, What was your training like? Um, it's changed. And one of the things I like to ask people about is things have changed so much. So back in those days, there was no, you know, stack overflow or kind of like things you could go to on the web to learn, you know, did you have just stacks of books and, you know, write out code by hand and things like that? Well, yes. Now, when I actually got into computer technology, we were no longer using um, punch cards. So those were out. When I started work, where I worked, they still had some things that they did with punch cards. But I tell people, I said, it's this ancient language known as COBOL. And if I'd stayed as a COBOL programmer, I could be making a lot of money right now because COBOL programmers are aging out 
but some of that software is still out there running, especially with big banks, credit card companies. There's some people that are running some serious COBOL. But yeah, we, we learned in school and then you basically had manuals and books and that's what you learned from. And if you had a question, you had to go to the manual and look it up or, you know, holler across the cubicle wall because we did have cubicles and say, hey, do you know how to do such and such? So it was interesting. And I, I was actually pretty good at it. So when you're pretty good at it, you get on into management because then you realize you don't want to do that all, all your life. And so I never learned the um, PC languages at all. So I didn't get into C++ or any of that. I managed people who did that. And I assumed that they knew what they were doing. And it must've been, a fa I mean, healthcare must've been just a fascinating industry to have been in for the last, the last 30 years. I mean, the just amazing oh, yes. transformations. Yeah. Amazing transformations, you know, from the very beginnings, it was, it was business applications, you know, payroll and getting the charge in and billing out to the patient. And then gradually over the 33 plus years, and I've been out of it for five years, so I don't even have a clue. I mean, then to um, make that electronic chart so that the doctor can look up the information and, you know, used to be, and you're probably too young for this, but if you went to the doctor, they'd ask you like a series of questions. And then if they gave you to a specialist, they would ask you the same series of questions. And so you kept repeating information and the electronic record really helps to share that information around. Yeah, I'm a little older than I look. Um, and I do remember those days, you know, walking into, um, you know, the doctor's office and it's, you know, there would always be this wall of files of paper, oh, paper yeah. files and manila, manila folders with color coding on them and things like that. And yeah, the repetition of things, the miscommunication about things was was a common experience. Um, it, it was so fascinating. I mean, like so many other people, I got vaccinated uh, twice now because of the pandemic and the experience was just incredible compared to what would have been possible in the olden days, right? Like, you know, I, yeah. I mean, here, you know, here I like, I got an email saying, you know, do you want an appointment? You know, click here. I booked, I got to pick the time down to the five minute increment. It told me where to go. It even gave me a QR code and I went there and stood in line. And like, all I did was like swipe my driver's license. And then I stood in line and it all just happened magically. They knew who I was every step of the way and, and you know, whether I'd had my first one or my second one and things like that, it was just incredible. And to think about the amazing things that, you know, about like tracking prescriptions and things like that, that sure. have become possible. And, and that is the upside of it. The downside of it is that the doctor feels like he's got too much time staring at a screen and not enough time staring at you, the patient. And so, you know, that's the doctor's complaint is they have to put so much into the chart, but um, and speaking of paper records versus electronic records, so this kind of comes back to that. I, I had this blog and I had, um, today it's got almost 2,600 posts on it. I mean, it's a ginormous blog. And I remember I used to read a magazine called Computer World and they had an article in there that said the Smithsonian, if they wanted to preserve something, they would far rather preserve something in paper than electronic format. Because if it's electronic, you know, and somebody hands them a, you know, a three and a half inch floppy and says, preserve this, I have to preserve that floppy and the equipment to read that and that file type in perpetuity. And that's, that's not going to be, you know, in 50 years, who knows? So I always felt like what was on my blog, I wanted to get it off my blog and into a book in paper form so that someday somebody would walk, not that it's going to end up at the Smithsonian, 
but somebody might walk into a used bookstore and there would be this dusty old book called Potted and Prune and they would discover it and it would be kind of fun for them, I thought. Would be fun for me. Yeah, that's uh, that's really fascinating. Uh, the, I mean, that that topic of preserving information and particularly libraries and books and stuff like that is something I could talk about for forever. Um, and I'm, it sounds like you could too. Um, it's, uh, you know, I remember, um, I think it was in the late, mid to late 90s when libraries, some libraries started investing a lot in those giant laser discs um, oh, to yeah. preserve information. And then that that didn't last. Um, nope. And, you know, people who are concerned about archiving the web and things like that, you know, this is a, it's a just a, a huge, huge issue, but it's also there with books. Um, and the, the, the idea that, that you would publish a blog as a book motivated by the idea to preserve it makes complete sense uh, if, if, you think about, if you think about that, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, you, you um, started publishing books based on your blog, um, and your latest one is Digging and Delighted. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, and by the way, for anyone listening, there's going to be links in our transcript on, online to, to everything here. But yeah, your latest book came out just recently. And I was wondering if you could talk a little yes. bit about that. Sure. So there's actually five books and it started out one book and then there were two. And then I thought, oh, a trilogy sounds nice. And then I did a fourth and I tried to make it not part of the other t- three. That made no sense. And so now it's, I looked it up. It, basically it's a series and it can go on indefinitely. And, and because of the way I title them with alliteration and, you know, potted and pruned and now digging and delighted and I have other letters of the alphabet they accuse me of being the one who's going to try to use every letter of the alphabet and I won't stop until and they're trying to figure out well what's x in the garden so but anyway digging and delighted is probably it's loosely based on the kind of stuff I used to blog about but it is sort of my advice to live your best gardening life and so it's it's like one of my friends said when they were reading it they said carol you're trying to help us learn to think like a gardener. And it's like, that's it. I'm trying to help you think about the way gardeners think about things. And it's, it's a little bit different, especially if you're new to gardening, you're like, you know, people like me that have been gardening my whole life. I mean, I'm slinging plants around and, you know, they're like, do you have to be more careful with those? And the, the famous question that I got at the checkouts of a discount store that starts with W was, <laughs> do these seeds work? And I'm like, did, did you go to school? <laughs> do, do you know where food comes from? If seeds don't work, we're an extinct species at this point. So I just have a lot of chat. There's uh, 30 chapters like that. Just advice to think like a gardener. Yeah, I've got a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you about that. Actually, I, I, by the way, I definitely recommend um, uh, listening to the Garden Angelus podcast. It's, it's absolutely delightful. Well, thank you. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of kind of just fun and relaxing and very informative at the same time. And when you talk about thinking like a gardener, you reminded me of a couple of, I never got into it, but my dad's a biologist um, and he loved poking around in the little garden that we had. And I remember this is a little bit of a gruesome thing for anyone listening, but we had, we, I grew up in Saskatchewan in Canada and there were lots of grasshoppers. And my dad, to sort of make me and my brother laugh, he thought it would anyway he was popping the heads off grasshoppers and, and then showing us how they keep jumping around uh, <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't remember I don't remember finding it funny and um but uh and another time he was um eating some broccoli from the garden and I pointed out that there were these gray worms all over it and he goes oh yeah protein and just pops pops a new one in right uh, but when you talk about thinking like a gardener um I was wondering if you could maybe give a couple of specific examples I mean what you know is it patience for example things like that 
Well, it's, it's things that people don't think about. Like um, if you move into an existing gardening pe garden, people just tend to sort of put up with the plants that are there. And I say, grow the plants you love. And if there's a bunch of plants in your garden that you don't love, what's the joy of going out there and working in the garden? Because let's face it, it's hard work. So I advocate, if you don't love that plant, get rid of it. Get another plant that you do love. And then the other thing, people in gardening, they, they get kind of nervous because we have botanical names for plants. So, and it's very useful because the botanical name of, of um, I can't even think of a botanical name right now, but uh, coneflowers is a very common Native American flower. Um, and the name of it escapes me. Give me one minute. Echinacea, Echinacea purpurea. So I can ask for Echinacea purpurea anywhere in the world, and it is the exact same plant, or it should be. And the thing is, people are afraid to pronounce those words because they look weird. And, you know, am I saying Echinacea correctly or is it Echinacea? And what I tell people is that botanical Latin is a written language, not a spoken language. And don't let anybody tell you that you've pronounced it wrong because nobody knows how they're pronounced. You just pronounce it. You know, it's clematis, clematis, which is a nice vine. And either way is correct, in my opinion. Yeah, that's really fascinating because I would say one of the things that I find intimidating when I even just think about gardening is like trying to get it right, right? You know, that there's going to be some rules that I've got to learn, that there's going to be some conventions that I have to follow. And just naturally, I don't know why, but naturally for me, I mean, I guess it's fear of the plant dying um, is, is probably probably the main thing that I would I find kind of puts puts me in that kind of passive. I mean, I don't do it, but passive relationship when I think about it, oh, I've got to. I've got a, I've really got a responsibility to try and make this work, but that's not up to me. That's up to some rules out there that I've got to find and follow. There really aren't as many rules as people think. And if you're a gardener, you have killed more plants than you will ever admit. I mean, I got a whole graveyard. It's called the compost pile, but there's tons of plants that I've killed. I've killed house plants. Um, I've intentionally killed plants. It's like this, this sucker's got to go. Of course, weeds have got to go. And there's some things that I thought, oh, I want to keep that going. And then it up and dies on me. And you don't realize it. And then one spring you're going, you know what? That plant is gone. Where did it go? And it just disappeared, died. It happens. You just get another one. It just opens up space in the garden and you get to go buy another plant. And um, do you use, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I mean, do you use chemicals? I personally do not use chemicals in my garden. Um, I grow a lot of vegetables and I said, tell people you can buy pesticide laden vegetables at the grocery store all day long. So why bother in your garden? And there's a couple of ways you can cover certain crops to keep certain like the little worms that you said were on the broccoli is actually the larva of a white butterfly that you'll see. Oh, it looks so pretty in the garden and it's laying eggs at the bottom of the base of the broccoli plant and then the eggs hatch and those little worms come up and they get right in that head of broccoli and as your dad says protein now you do try to get them all out of there before you actually eat it and you can cover those crops and things or you know sometimes I say I'm just not going to grow broccoli because it's going to have those little worms on it in my garden or it's going to get eaten up by the worms because I'm just not going to spray anything on it one of the things that um people often have an issue with is managing animals as well. 
Um, I live in an area, I live in a city, but it's full of deer. Um, and uh, so, you know, everybody, I mean, since since COVID, there are a lot of those new, I forget what they're called, but these little boxes that are now on the curbs with, um, you know, flowers and plants and, and sure. vegetables and things in them. But they all have these really tall posts with a, a sort of mesh fence around it to keep the to keep the hungry deer out. Do you have any sort of general advice for people who are like thinking of setting up a garden and worried about, you know, what am I going to do about deer or, or whatever other animals they have in their area? Well, look around and see if you, if you have neighbors that are gardening, see what they're doing. Cause if, if they're having problems with deer, you will certainly know it. They'll be doing things um, to try to keep the deer away from their, their gardens. I personally don't have problems with deer. Uh, they say they are deer. There's a woods behind the houses across the street, and they say the deer never leave the tree line and certainly haven't ever left the tree line, come up through their backyard and across the street to my yard. Um, it's one of those things that you, you do sometimes end up having to put up ugly fencing and things like that to keep them out. I have rabbits. I have uh, chipmunks, squirrels, raccoons, probably possum. I haven't seen a possum in a while groundhog, but I, I just try to do the least invasive thing to allow them, them and me to coexist. So I feed birds. I have a big baffle thing on my bird feeder. So the raccoons can't get up there and get all the food because they do every night if you don't do that. And then I employ some rather odd techniques that seem to work for rabbits. And you can look this up on the web because I'm famous for it, is I put little plastic plastic forks up and down the rows where I sow the green beans. And just that little fork sort of keeps the rabbits from the green bean seedlings. I call it the fortress. <laughs> that's really, that's really, that's a really good idea. Uh, that's really interesting. And I, I really like the idea too of um, accepting that you're going to have to coexist with, with animals and all these other mm -hmm. things that, that might, might appear at least in a kind of immediate sense to be a problem. I think in particular about the, the sort of, I don't know, predilection for total control that that people who like you know where, where I grew up neighborhood where I grew up you know there were poison signs on lawns right you know every spring and summer or whatever because people wanted you know didn't want you know they, they couldn't abide nary a dandelion oh and with, dandelions I, I have the dandelion yeah and um I, I guess that's a convention that's probably not quite as followed as it was in the past but you know there was somehow there was a, people thought that you know oh, if I'm going to have this like front yard with grass it has to be perfect in the sense of totally controlled or else, you know, I've somehow failed managing my yard or something like that. Right. But, but right. accepting that, like, you know, yeah, some raccoon's going to get in there every once in a while and mess yeah. things around, you know, maybe that's why the plant disappeared or something like that. And just accepting that there's going to be these things that you have to constantly be tending to. Right. And I grow a little bit of sweet corn. I tell people, I says, I know how to tell when sweet corn's ripe. The raccoons get it the night before. <laughs> they don't they didn't actually this year I did actually get my own sweet corn but I mean there's nothing more maddening than to go out and it's just like a four by eight plot of sweet corn I only expected to get about six years out of it to go out there and find the whole thing is just trashed because the raccoons have gotten in there and trashed it to get to the sweet corn I imagine that people ask you for advice all the time uh and I just I was actually curious to ask you um uh for the last I mean more longer than I wish it had been I've been asking people a little bit about like you know how has the pandemic affected you and things like that and did you see an uptick in in people following your blog or asking you for advice or things like that as people got into gardening so much in the last year and a half or so 
Well, this is going to come as a big surprise to you and maybe not, but I don't really track my blog statistics very closely. I do see a few comments. I get some emails from people that will read something like I grow figs outside in Indiana, which is not the usual thing that people think. And so I get two or three emails a season that says, hey, tell me about growing figs outside in Indiana. What are you growing? And I'll answer those emails, but I don't really closely track my blog statistics. I write because I enjoy writing and posting and that's it. I'm good. Well, and in addition to writing and posting, it, it turns out yum, you, you also started uh, podcasting as well, uh, getting, getting, getting information out there to people in a, in a fun and, and humorous way. Uh, when did you get the Garden Angelists blog started? The Garden Angelist blog, Dean Ash and I started that in, so we just did our 150th episode. So about three years ago, um, 2018, we started it in, in the fall of 2018. We had gone, we were both at a garden communicators convention in Chicago. You know, people were talking about blogging. That's the next big thing. We knew a couple people that were doing garden blogs. And she just said, she just texted me one day and she says, let's do a podcast. And I'm like, okay. And that was it. We just started doing this podcast. Actually, for those now, listening, we, sorry. We, we've known each other for a long time, obviously, through garden writing, even though she lives in Oklahoma and I live in Indiana. And for any um, authors listening uh, who might be a little bit, you know, well, that how, how do you actually start a podcast? Did you have any resources that you went to or anything like that? Or did you just kind of set things up? Well, we, um, we knew a couple of other garden writers that were doing a podcast and they were doing, you know, not like the one person doing it, but a combination. And the one woman lived in Cape Cod and the other one in New Mexico. And they did a session at this conference to explain how, the, how they did it, how they did their recording. And so we said, okay, we can do it too. And so we figured out where we wanted to host it. Um, you know, I looked at different hosting things. I didn't end up using the hosting company they used. I ended up with a different one, which I've been very happy with. It's sort of a, I think a newer player in the market and they've kind of grown and added a features every year. So, and then recently we used to, you know, we used to get on Skype and then we would each record on GarageBand and she would send me the recording. And now we're doing like we're doing here where we do it on Zoom. And then depending on the quality, I can either get the single recording and say that's good enough or I get the separate ones and do more editing. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing the details of that. We've been doing this one for about 10 years. Um, and yeah, I've seen things change. And, you know, particularly, I mean, you know, with Zoom, it's it's really changed and it's evolving. It's getting better and better, particularly at... Um, voice levels and things like that, right. Cancel, canceling out background noise, like, you know, because in the old days, I mean, with the old tools I used to use, there was a Skype call recorder app, and it didn't, it didn't like kind of turn off the feed when a person wasn't talking automatically. So there was like just a lot more editing that you had to do in those days, and, and things have gotten got a lot better. And so just moving on to the next part of the interview. So you have self-published all of your books. Um, and, I have. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that decision. Did you ever consider approaching a traditional publishing company and asking them for a contract? I, I briefly did. I, I talked to, I rather informally talked to one publisher and I said, hey, I want to write a book of gardening essays and there won't be glossy photographs of gardening in there. It will just be fun little stories about gardening. First thing they said is, oh no, you got to have pictures. And then I told him what I thought about calling it. And he says, oh no, you can't call it that. 
And then I realized that if you're going to edit with a publisher, you're going, it's, it's a partnership and you're providing just one piece, the writing. They're going to figure out the cover. They're going to figure out the title. Um, they're going to figure out the distribution. So you're not really going to have your baby, so to speak, except in between the two covers. And even then, there's probably going to be an editor who's going to do some massaging. So I knew that what I was writing, the gardening essays, is... Uh, for lack of a better way to put it, more personable than many gardening books. And I just decided, I'll do it myself. So that's what I did. Not exactly by myself. I did hire somebody for the first couple of books, a company called The Garden of Words. And um, so I wrote it and I told them what I wanted the covers to look like. And they got a graphic designer and showed me the covers and everything was good. And they packaged it up and they got them uploaded. And then after I saw what they did, uh, had them work on the first four. This last one I did myself. Uh, I did hire a graphic designer because the, the cover has a certain look to it. And the children's book I did with basically my nephew, who's a graphic designer. He did all the illustrations and we did that one together because I guess I have enough awareness of computer technology from working in it all those years. I'm not afraid to go out and just try it. And I look and say, oh, that's easy. Well, that's not a big deal. So now I think from this point on, I'll probably do most of them myself with my graphic designer doing the covers. And what, what sort of tools or apps do you use to produce your books? So this last book, I actually used a tool called Vellum, which is on the Mac. And Vellum um, is used by a lot of people that are writing fiction. You basically take your Word document and you download it into Vellum and then you can format it and add pages and things. I think you can probably add pictures and illustrations if you want, but I use that and then it uploads the exact formats that you need to upload. And I, I publish through Ingram Spark, and then I can do a, a hardback because some people like hardbacks. I can do the paperback and I also let them do the ebook, although I hear that's not the best deal for ebooks. And then um, I, that's, that's what I use. And then independent bookstores, We'll go out to Ingram Spark. They will order books because if you use if you use Amazon, the KDP as your only distribution mechanism, there's no independent bookstore that I know of that will go out to Amazon and order books at forty percent discount. That's the competition. That's the that's the wolf that's eating them uh, eating their lunch. So, but Amazon got really fussy when I decided that I was going to use Ingram Spark for sole distribution and not upload it to Amazon via KDP, Amazon would not show that book in stock at all. It was always out of stock, the paperback. So to appease Amazon, I do upload a version to KDP that's on Amazon. I turn off worldwide distribution from Amazon or expanded distribution and let Ingram handle that. And that seems to work for me. So then it, it does show up and not that I'm getting sales from target.com and walmart.com and Barnes and Noble, but it does show up in all the places that get the basic feed from Ingram Spark and show the books, yeah. including bookshop.org. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much for sharing all those details. That's super helpful to anyone, uh, not only anyone who's sort of thinking about getting into self-publishing in the first place, but who's experienced something similar. And it's always helpful to hear about that you're not alone, what precisely happened and why. 
or at least why insofar as you can figure it out and, and, and what you can do um, about it. Um, you know, the, the Amazon is obviously a huge, huge issue um, for people in a lot of ways. Um, you know, that is where a lot of eyeballs are uh, yeah. uh, and they know, they know it. And so they can do things to you. Um, they're all, Mr. Basically all automated by the way. So don't, don't think Amazon's coming after you personally, but no, they are not, but they, um, you know, and that, that automation can itself be of, of regulating things can, you can end up being, you know, it, it might be misapplied to you. And then that can, you can end up in an awful place where you're trying to get your book visible again, or, or, you know, or get your account reinstated or, or what have you. I don't know this for certain, but I believe at least, at least it used to be the case that they would automatically check to see if you were selling book elsewhere for less, if you were enrolled in certain programs in Amazon, and then they'd, they'd find various ways to try and pressure you to, to not do that. Um, and so, you know, getting your book on there is, is kind of like, you know, a lot of people do do it, but, but you know, there, it does come with a, a headache factor. Right. That's I price sure. my book the same across all the platforms, you know, from from using myidentifier.com, which is where you go get your ISBNs, says the retail price, same retail price on Ingram Spark, same retail price on Amazon. So there's, you know, if Amazon knocks it down, and sometimes I've seen like the hardback that I priced at $24.99, I've seen it for $2.99. I think, oh, I should buy a bunch of copies for that price. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that reminds me, um, you, you do sell autographed copies as well. Uh, yes. what, did, what mechanism did you use to set that up and how does that work? So today I use Square and I have an online store and it works pretty well. I did discover something. Um, Square will only allow me to take credit cards that are in the United States. So somebody from Canada tried to order a book and they said they won't take my credit card. And so I'm like, that's weird. So I looked it all up and it said, oh, you know, you can only take U.S. credit cards. So the person was willing to pay me on PayPal, but then I said, well, by the way, you wanted to buy three books and three books sent to Canada will cost you $25 in postage alone. And they're like, thanks. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Those, those kinds of things can be really tricky. Um, uh, but, but, but I guess just to, just to sort of um, tie that off. So uh, the way it would work is um, someone puts in an order through the search through square and then you mm -hmm. get the order and then you actually put the book the autograph book into a box yourself and send it yourself. I put it in an envelope. I take it to the post office. I mail it out media mail, though the price of media mail just went up again. So I got to compare it to first class and make sure I'm not getting snookered by the yeah. post office. Yeah. It's funny that I, I used to have some acquaintances who sold books on used books online. Uh, they were the kind of people who go to the, you know, the auctions kind of thing and get the big uh -huh. consignment, you know, or whatever. And, um, they lived in they lived in Montreal and they did all their U.S. business by driving down to the states and and <laughs> sending it sending the mail from there. Uh, it was oh you would have to it's yeah. it's just it's just ridiculous to get it across the border because with my first book I actually hired a publicist, um, which I won't do again because I realized they were sending the book to people that I knew and it's just like I just had to have the gumption to go ask them hey you wanna you want a copy of my book can I be on your radio show. I don't need to pay this woman to do it, but she convinced me to send the book to Canada. And so that's when I realized how much it costs to send books to, to Canada. So I sent two or three and I says, I got to sell several books off these deals in order to make it work. Speaking of gumption, um, you just gave me a great 
segue into the next part of the interview where we, where we talk about your recent blog post, uh, how to market your book without social media, uh, which of course we'll be linking to. Uh, but if you're looking for it and, and you're just listening to this, it's on uh, Jane Friedman's website at janefriedman.com. I really like this post when I came across it. Um, I, I particularly like the great advice and the straightforwardness. And, you know, often I was saying this again before we started recording, but, you know, often when, when you sort of see things about like how I got off social media or whatever, it's often kind of, um, there's a lot of resentfulness and stuff like that in it and stuff like that. And this, this post is not like that. This is just like, you can, it's just, you know what, you can do it if you want to, but if you do, you still have to do a lot of work to market your book. Uh, That's it's right. Not, it's, it's not going to happen because you don't like social media and, and that makes you feel good about yourself somehow by getting off of it, which maybe it should, but um, you still have a lot of work to do. And uh, one of the things you talk about in there um, is, uh, is getting a guest appearance on a podcast um and, I got one and you got one although although I reached out to you you didn't reach out to me but you do specifically mention hey you know go go ask if you find right. a good podcast present yourself and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that about how, how you go about doing that because I think I mean I know that I do get we do get well sometimes from publicists those are typically the the worst uh you know do you want to have my guest on the pod my client on your podcast and it's the reason I say that they're worst is typically these are people who just cut and they just cut and paste and don't tailor the the message to the particular podcasting recipient. Uh, and whenever you see that, it's just it's just kind of insulting um, and and unprofessional. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like, you know, for people who are wondering, OK, well, you know, how, how I'm shy or I'm worried about, yeah, you know, pissing someone off. You know, how do I go about asking to be a guest on a podcast? Well, the first thing is. Uh, you should know the podcast. And so Dee and I were asked uh, a couple of months ago, this woman said, hey, do you mind if I recommend guests for your podcast? And we're like, have you ever heard our podcast? We have yet to have a guest on there. It's always just the two of us. So if you know that they have guests, you just reach out to them. And I mentioned I'm in Garden Communicators International. And so I know people that have podcasts and they do have guests. And I reach out and say, hey, I want to be a guest. Or they have a radio show. So I've got uh, two, two podcast appearances, you know, kind of out there waiting to set a date. I've got one radio date. It's not till December, but, you know, she says, we'll sell your book for Christmas, which is perfect. And another one, you know, she says, I'm in my busy season, but we'll have you on this fall. And so sometimes you have to remind them and say, I'm still out here. Uh, I'd love to be a guest. And, you know, it's just a matter of just you, you want to be asking but you don't want to be a pest about it and yeah and as you say know the podcast and make it make it clear in your email or your message however you get it to them that like you do know their podcast exactly um, you know and it, it doesn't have to be like super complicated and it doesn't necessarily need to be full of compliments or something like that it's like hey I really like your podcast I particularly enjoyed the recent interview that you did with with so-and-so about such and such. I recently published a book on a similar topic and thought, hey, maybe I'd be a good guy. You know, like it, it, it's, it's common sense once you've thought it through and you know it, uh, but until you've done that, you know, it might, it might seem a little bit like right. um, tricky, but you know, just be, be specific about the podcast and be specific about why you think you'd be a good guest and what you think you can talk about. You might end up talking about something completely different, but, right. but just showing them that like, you're a real person on the other end. You're not somebody who bought you know, who got a productivity app and dumped a bunch of email addresses in there to try and go get some, get some attention that way. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't do that. Most people don't, don't like that. Um, well, speaking of email, I, I did find that 
when I sent a blind carbon to like 10 people and said, Hey, my new book is out. You've been, you've, you've taken review copies in the past and helped me promote it. Are you interested? I got about two that responded because I think it was because it was a blind carbon. But when I sent a note to them specifically, and then they were like, Oh yeah, I'd love a copy, Carol. And you know, so. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think it's true in, in all kind of, I mean, not, I'm gonna, I don't even want to say industries. It's just, you know, if, if, if it looks like it's, yeah, blind carbon or a, a cut and paste, you know, whether it's, you know, for any startup people out there, if you're approaching a venture capitalist uh, for a potential investment, definitely make it clear that you know who they are. You know, and the formula, I mean, I have, the reason I have the formula in my head is because I there was a time in my life when I was doing that. And it's like, you know, I, I recently read about your investment in such and such and such and such. And, you know, we really think that our company might be a good fit for you, things like that. And there are, there are, you know, people who are in those worlds where they're often being reached out to who are very explicit. Like, I just don't answer something that doesn't look like it's specific to me and it's coming from a real person. Right. Um, I don't either. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you also talk about professional organizations as a way of marketing your book without being on social media. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, what you mean by that. So I am in, um, I know that a lot of writers join uh, American Society of Journalists and Authors. I'm in a group called Garden Communicators International, and we're in the United States, Canada, with people as far away as Australia. Um, but we all have in common that we're writing and articles and books and we're doing podcasting and radio shows and tv shows it's all about communicating about gardening and so i can tell you as somebody who does a weekly podcast and tries to post on her blog very regularly good quality content is always needed and so you can reach out to them and you know can you do a review of my book can you okay you know write about it would you like a review copy and you just sort of get the word out through this professional organization and they get to know you too and sort of reciprocal. So like Dee and I in our podcast, every week we talk about a gardening book and probably 80% of the books that we talk about are review copies we've gotten from the publishers or from the authors themselves that said, you know, could you, could you mention my book? And the nice thing is for somebody like me, that's not on social media, a lot of times if we mention their book, then we'll send back and say, hey, we talked about your book on this week's podcast and they'll socialize it for you. One, uh, one really interesting thing you also mentioned there is that although, although you know, that it's all about, you know, like how getting off social media and what, what can you, what's all the other work you can do, um, you do have a LinkedIn presence. Um, I do. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that's, that's the sort of exception. I made LinkedIn the exception because I feel like that's, still a place where people go out to find quote unquote professional Carol. So I'd like to find out more about Carol Michael, the author. Um, and so I can put stuff out there and I try to make the content um, that I put on LinkedIn relevant to quote unquote professional Carol, the garden writer. And it's not, you know, you don't go out there and see somebody's grandkids, which is fine. I, I'm, I don't want to say that certain posts and stuff are bad, but you tend to see professionalism on LinkedIn more so. At least I do the way I've linked into people, less so on Facebook. Yeah, it's 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 interesting what a practical matter it is. I mean, so I was really glad when I read that you were on LinkedIn because, um, you know, I mean, I can of course I could find your about page on your on your website and stuff like that. But for people who are thinking of interviewing you or people who are thinking of doing a write up about your book or something like that, 
having something that's a little bit more more serious uh, and kind of third party, even though you know you write all your own content on LinkedIn anyway, but you know is actually really helpful for people who are doing research on you, which they will do if they're if they're going to be interviewing you or something like that or or doing a review and things like that. So so having some some kind of some kind of presence out there is still important, even if it's not you know the 240 characters and here's a picture of my cat or something like that kind of kind of. Well, thing. you know. The internet was invented to share cat photos. That's that's no fact. <laughs> and by the way, nothing against cat photos. I love cats and cat photos, but uh, if that's if that might whatever wherever you're doing that might not necessarily be the best place to also be uh, promoting your your professional stuff. Unless you are a professional like feline expert or something. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> a breeder of Siamese cats or something. Um, you also mentioned local bookstores, uh, and this is a matter of basically walking in and going, hey, would you be willing to sell my book? Yes, and that, and what I tell people is you, you can't walk into a bookstore that you have never been in, you have never shopped in, and you have never bought anything in that's local. That's just, you know, you can't say, hey, I buy all my books on books on Amazon, but why don't you carry my book in your store? But if you go in there and you're a regular customer, and they find out you're an author, they'll, they'll carry your book. And so, unfortunately, the closest bookstore to me is about 25 miles south as far as uh, independent. I don't count Barnes & Noble as an independent. And the, uh, there's another one north of me, about 30 minutes. The one north has a mix of used and new. And she takes books on consignment that I, I just got a nice check from her from the book she sold. And the one south of me is all new books. And she's always happy to stock them. And um, so I need to get down there because I, I think she's got some of my new books. I need to go down and sign them. Um, another thing that you mentioned, and there's a specific thing in there is uh, having a YouTube channel. Um, and uh, the thing that you mentioned in there that I really liked was that um, you, you don't have the biggest presence, but you enjoy doing them. Uh, and I, right. think, I think this is, this is something that's often, you know, for self-published authors, even people who are newer, people who have been doing it for a while, you know, you often think of the work you do to promote your book as this like chore this work. unpleasant thing it's work it's like i've got to figure out how to game the facebook ads algorithm after i've already figured out how to change the amazon algorithms and then they've changed on me already and you know you're always playing catch up and you're being competitive with other people for space and stuff like that and maybe you should still do those things uh but it's also important to keep in mind that you can actually and this is kind of a general theme of, of your post is like you can actually limit you're, you're self-published. It's up to you what you want to do, right? And, and exactly. you, you, can, you can actually limit your book promotion activities to things you enjoy doing. <laughs> that, that's, that's okay. <laughs> exactly. And I, I'll say, you know, I did talk to somebody and she's like, oh, Carol, I'd like to get off social media like you do, but my book's just coming out and my publisher would just freak out if they found out, you know, I wasn't going to post on Instagram and, you know, and she has a very lovely book and it's got a lot of pictures in it. And so, it really, you know, can attract a lot of people with good pictures on Instagram, I guess. But she's like, oh, I wish I could get off. And she only has 1,400 followers on Instagram. I looked it up the other day. And then I heard this other author talk. He has 600,000 followers on Instagram. And he wrote a book about houseplants. But he wrote a book about houseplants because he had 600,000 followers on Instagram a literary agent approached him and said, hey, I think you could write a book. Well, first of all, if you're writing about gardening, very few of us have literary agents. 
it's usually, a, you know, the publishers and there's most of the publishers just work directly with the authors. So if you have 600,000 followers on Instagram, knock yourself out, have fun, you know, just the right person at the right time with the right subject matter, houseplants, which are very big with the, I don't even know what generation it is, but the ones in their 20s and 30s, houseplants is a big deal for them. I think that's, so. Gen, I think that's Gen Z. Yeah, Gen Z, whatever. <laughs> I, I'll admit that I'm a baby boomer. And so after that, I lost track of all the different generations. So yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm um, from the generation that was first given a letter, um, Generation X. Uh, ah. And, and um, we're, we're the one that no one knows anything about except that <laughs> we have to take care of our parents and our kids kind of thing. There you um, go. Uh, and um, there, there are more items in, in your list and things that you talk about in the blog post, but the last one I'd like to uh, ask you about is uh, speaking. So you mentioned that, that speaking publicly can actually be really a good way of, of getting attention. Um, and particularly if you're writing, I mean, the thing is, it, this is true both if you're writing about fiction and if you're writing about nonfiction. I remember the last time I went to Book Expo America in New York, a few years ago, some authors, they were fiction authors, they got on a panel and they talked about their books and they talked about their, their genre and stuff like that. And everybody absolutely loved it. They love people love seeing authors in person. Um, you know, they, they love hearing them talk, they love being able to ask them questions and things like that. And so uh, when it comes to speaking, um, so do you, I imagine it's probably like with podcasts or radio shows, one thing you do is you find the right venue and then you put yourself forward as a potential speaker. Yes. And so I, I'm registered on another site called Great Garden Speakers. And so I can be found there. Um, and then, you know, of course, within my local city and everything, I'm, people know that I'm a speaker and so they'll hire me. Um, and it is interesting. Um, I pretty much can judge an audience by looking at them exactly how many books I sell because older audiences tend to buy fewer books. They're trying to get rid of stuff, not add stuff to their collection. And then some people, they tend to buy the book after they hear you speak, because before you speak, they're like, not quite sure. What are these gardening humor books you have, Carol? And then I speak and I try to make my, my, speak, my speech, my presentation humorous. And then they're like, oh, humor, I'm going to buy that book. So it just varies. Um, I, I went to speak in Florida, which was a big deal for me. That's a long way from Indiana. And I told them, I says, I've never gardened in Florida. And they're like, okay, but you're funny. So I didn't, I shipped 50 books and thought, oh, I hope I don't have to slap back 45 books. And I ended up selling like 59 because they all wanted the book afterwards. And then, you know, they just kept giving me money and I took down addresses and then mailed them the books later. So that, you know, that turned out to be pretty nice. So the bigger the venue, the better. And a lot of master gardener groups and stuff, they'll have a couple hundred people there. And so if you have 200 people there and 20% will buy the book, which is kind of my average, that's 40 books. That's great. Thanks very much for sharing that. That's really good. It's, um, it's, it's funny because, you know, you often hear the, the sort of, you know, stories of like, you know, I went all the way across the country and there were like three people in a bookstore basement, uh, but it can actually turn out really well and you can meet people and you can have a great time and they can have a great time when you do speaking engagements like that, and you can also sell books. Um, well, um, Carol, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to be on the Front Matter podcast. I appreciate you having me. I will be listening very soon. 
Thanks very much. And I'll make sure to, again, again, to have links to everything, including your latest book uh, in okay. the transcript online. Thank you, Len. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.